the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We're covering um, a book entitled uh, The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium. Uh, by an, a colleague of mine, Don Anna Volson, was the author. And um, we have been basically covering this book because um, <laughs> the gospel of the kingdom is very different than just the gospel without the last three words of the kingdom. And so that's what we're exploring here. Um, basically, the question is, in Jeremiah 1.9, it talks about sometimes it's necessary to um, deconstruct before you reconstruct. And, um, and sometimes it's necessary to pluck out uh, something before you uh, plant again. And so uh, we're looking at this uh, work from... Uh, Don and Avolson, the kingdom from creation to the millennium, as examining something um, from in the context of why do we believe what we believe? Um, I'm, I've authored uh, three books. Uh, one's called "God's Got a Problem on His Hands." That goes back to 2003, and um, basically, with the I was saying, gee, maybe our theology is upside down because the church uh, isn't influencing the culture. The culture is influencing the church. And uh, that was the motivation of writing that first book uh, several years ago. And then the second book I wrote was um, called The Blueprint. Um, The question was uh, whether Bible design, God's Bible design, is a Hebrew circular design, uh, cyclical in nature, or whether it was a Greek straight line linear design. alongside of Western thinking uh, with the Roman Empire and Greek philosophy uh, after the gospel left the first century and uh, went out into the Gentile world. What happened to the Hebrew gospel? Um, We talked briefly about the fact that um, 39 out of the 40 authors were of the 66 books of the Bible were Jewish. And that's a shock to a lot of people. And um, when you're studying a work... Uh, 
work of scripture or literature, you have to understand the context of who these people were that wrote the Bible, uh, wrote to whatever work it is, what influenced them, um, what was uh, going on with them culturally, uh, linguistically. Um, and anyway, the third book I wrote, which is the most recent one, uh, came out this year, as a matter of fact, is called Homecoming. And below it says how the new covenant brings both uh, Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And that talks much about um, what God is doing in these end times about unification um, of the different um, components of his of His kingdom. And, um, and basically we have two groups of people. We have the Jews and we have the Gentiles, and that's it. Um, but God's doing something very special about bringing together in uh, one kingdom um, form and fashion and, um, and military, quite frankly, because we are dealing with a spiritual battle. And he's, this is all called a mystery by Paul. He uses that term a lot. He uses it in Ephesians when he talks about one new man. He t- uses it in Galatians when he talks about one new man. And um, mysteries uh, in the Jewish Bible are called uh, secret plans. And so um, as the, the seals are coming off the scrolls in the end times, in the last days, we're f- discovering a lot of things that we just earlier assumed and found out later that really wasn't accurate. It really wasn't the case. And so uh, that's why this show is called Simple Truth Moment. I really do believe, um, that's why I wrote many of these books, is that the gospel uh, message is much more simple than we make it. But having said that, it doesn't mean that it's um, not profound. It doesn't mean it's life, not life-changing. It's (laughs) tremendously life-changing. And um, and that's what we're exploring here. Um, There definitely was a movement um, after the diaspora, which is the uh, basically the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 A.D. when the Roman um, general uh, Titus came in, and um, the first century gospel of uh, the message of Jesus, John the Baptist, uh, and later Paul, um, went out to the um, gr- Greek philosophically influenced kingdom of the Roman Empire. Uh, So it was basically a a location of Greek philosophy um, influencing the Romans as they governed uh, their empire, mixed in with a lot of flavor of paganism. And so that's kind of the environment. That is was the environment um, out of which uh, the gospel of the first century left and went out to make its impact. And so uh, what I want to talk about today is the 10th chapter of this book, The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium. And it's going to talk, it's called the Word of God. And we're going to talk about the word logos, uh, what it means in the Greek and um, how it was perceived by Jews and how it was perceived uh, by the Greeks. And um, you're going to see the subtle influence and sometimes not so subtle, of the uh, Western linear Greek thinking on a circular Jewish gospel. And um, I think spending some time with this chapter um, is well worth the investment. So we really don't have 
uh, talking about imaging, we don't have really a, a painting or uh, any sort of uh, image of what Yeshua, which is his um, Jewish name, um, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, what he looked like um, during the time that he was doing his ministry. And uh, people assumed that since he was a Semite, he was a Near Eastern Jew, he probably had um, darker hair and darker skin. Uh, but beyond these um, vague references, we really are just guessing as to what Jesus actually physically looked like. And so um, the reason this is important is the earliest known images depicting Jesus um, date way back uh, to a location on the, on the um, Euphrates River. Um, and between 232 and 256, um, the context of Jesus first appearing... Um, he shows up as a young man without a beard and with closely cropped hair. Um, he also, at the same time, is wearing a tunic and what is called a pallium, P-A-L-L-I-U-M. A pallium was a rectangular cloak uh, which was worn by Greek philosophical and Greek religious uh, leaders. Here we have this Jewish Messiah portrayed um, in this Greek um, apparel, and um, and all of that indicated that Jesus um, was of good social rank in the contemporary, for the time, of uh, Greco-Roman society. Uh, again, Greco in the sense of influenced by Greek philosophy and thinking, and Roman um, influenced by um, the Roman Empire and paganism. So later, um, we see some paintings uh, show up in the Ro- uh, Roman catacombs, and, um, and we find out that the imagery is still sticking with the same basic look of that as an uh, elite from Roman society um, when they paint Jesus. Um, the paintings are realistic, and... Um, but it's important to remember that the early Gentile church uh, thought of Jesus as a young hero uh, to be distinguished from other young men by his manifest sense of uh, possession of supernatural power, by his sense of command. Uh, yet he appears in dress and manner as a philosopher of good uh, social st- standing. And again, that's um, in the Greek sense of philosophy. And then we uh, travel on the timeline here, and by the first part of the fourth, fourth century, Jesus begins to be uh, routinely portrayed differently. Now he has long hair and often with a beard. Um, and that image has pretty much lasted until the present time. Um, he's usually uh, pictured as with the mantle of a classic philosopher. Uh, the trend is pretty much every culture has tried to picture Jesus in the ethnicity and the appearance which is familiar to them. And for the early Roman Christians, this was uh, basically a portrayal of uh, Jesus the philosopher um, extraordinaire. Um, Paul Actually, this, when we're looking at the perspective of how the Greeks viewed Jesus, Paul said 
earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, that there was a distinction between what was important to Jews and what was important to Gentiles. And he summarized it this way. He said, he said, Jews uh, demand signs, but Greeks seek wisdom. And um, what's what's more familiar uh, image could the early Christians, the Roman Empire, think of or conceive more than a philosophical dispenser of wisdom? And so that was kind of the the combination of how Jesus was being portrayed. And then um, within a couple of centuries from the crucifixion, there's a transition here that we see. And Jesus had stopped being um, a Jewish Messiah and began to take on the image more of a Greek philosopher. And what is more, the image of of, uh, this philosopher has pretty much remained consistent and stable all the way up into our modern era. Um, This transformation uh, must be kept in mind when considering how the concept of Jesus as the word of God, the word, W-O-R-D, is understood. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Obviously, the first part of uh, John's uh, gospel, I'll just read um, the first five verses here. John is pretty much, um, at this point, um, he settled in Ephesus, and it was a Gentile city in Asia. Um, and in that environment, the Apostle John would have been familiar with the pervasive influence of the f- Greek philosophy and Roman culture. And um, the author here, John Edwards, says it's not a coincidence that John begins his gospel with a criticism of one of the most familiar el- elements of what was going on in popular philosophical discourse at the time. The concept of Jesus as the word of God was introduced in the prologue of of the gospel, because don't forget John also wrote uh, epistles, and we're talking about the gospel of John here. And uh, in the first 18 verses of the chapter, um, this is what he's going to discuss, the concept of Jesus as the word of God. And this passage um, is an example of the philosophical literature from the ancient world. Um, Notice that in the first five verses, Jesus is not even mentioned by name. But there really is no doubt um, in the reader's mind as to who is the subject of the prologue uh, to this gospel. Um, He is the word of God, and the first five verses pretty much describe him in terms familiar to anyone who was... um, familiar with ancient uh, Roman uh, culture and Greek philosophy. And so, um, let's see here. We are going to go over to these verses. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the author um, goes to describe the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S, we say logos uh, many times, um, and the overwhelming number of times it appears um, in the New Testament, it's translated as word, but its applications um, can vary. Um, it can mean something which is spoken. And um, if, in fact, when you look at the derivation of the verb lego in Greek, it means to speak. Uh, but in classical Greek, it was used to um, explain or denote reasoned speech, leading to the English word logic. So using logos in a philosophical context um, was far from John, beginning with John. It was pretty much um, an idea that had been kicked around and discussed and debated amongst many Greek philosophers. And this goes back to the uh, time of Aristotle. Um, Aristotle um, uh, was a thinker of, well, he was a philosopher, and he used Logos as the name for the universal or the divine reason that was something that was behind the universe and controlled the universe. Um, there was another uh, philosopher, uh, philosopher, Greek named uh, Heraclitus, uh, taught that this reason or logos um, always exists and that all things take place according to this force of reason. Uh, the logos was seen as an expression, here you go, as a, this is important, a divine force or a divine intelligence behind all human life and existence. And um, even Plato weighed in. Um, the general idea per permeated Greek thinking for hundreds of years with a variety of different meanings and nuances. Um, Plato's uh, written work of the theory of forms, um, he describes it as an abstract idea which is behind the material world that could be observed, tangibly perceived, touched, um, and experienced. But um, Plato wrote that the objects that we see in the physical world are really flawed copies of the ideal object, which cannot be seen, which is invisible. And so, thus higher reason, uh, this power uh, behind the material world, existed in what Plato considered to be the sphere of the gods, little g, the sphere of the gods. Now, the reason I'm spending some time on this is that I want to show you how Greek thinking is radically, radically different than um, what we have with the Hebrew thinking, the Hebrew process of viewing the world. And the Greek world um, 
something's going to influence the other entity. Something is going to have an impact on the other when you have a Hebrew gospel in the first century growing out into this Greek world, which um, already has their very different philosophical ideas. So um, hundreds of years later, uh, many philosophers still espouse some form of the word or concept of logos to include the concept of reason. Now, I think we talked in an earlier show that um, the highest form of uh, importance and value in the Greek um, looking at things, their view, their uh, point of view, was that reason was the apex uh, of, of, the, of mankind. In, in other words, all things could be um, not only explained by by reason, but it actually was a goal because it was um, something supernatural for them. Um, the Stoics of the first century, they held a belief similar um, to the Greeks that Lagos, here we go, was a divine reason for the underlying of all life. And... Um, they believe that Lagos, the true Lagos, actually transcended the material world. Because, now here's where we have what we talked about earlier in earlier shows, what was Gnosticism? Gnosticism um, basically viewed the world as a flawed uh, invention, a flawed um, creation. And I'll go back just briefly to explain. The Gnostics um, had different levels of gods, and um, they had kind of a second or third string level of gods, which is called the Demerge. And the Demerge, according to the Gnostics, um, were little gods, but they created things. And, and one of the things that the Demerge created was the earth. And, um, and if they were a defective level of gods, they were not by any means the, the highest form, whatever um, was created by a defective level of gods would be in turn also defective. And so the material wor- world is relegated to this subservient class, if you will, with the divinity of a spiritual um, it, things that go on in the ethereal world, in the ethos, if you will, uh, transcending the material and going into the supernatural. That was all important for the Greek thinking. And, and um, it's really interesting when you compare that type of the permeation of the, their philosophy, how they viewed things, how they thought about things, and you compare it to a Jewish book that starts off with the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, and um, and especially at the end of the first book of the completion of crea- the creation story, we have the Yahweh, the God of Israel, who's going to make a declaration after he views all of creation, and he's going to op- have an opinion about it, and he said especially when it talked about looking at man and looking at the earth, he said, not only was it good, but if you look at your Bibles, take a look at the last four verses of chapter one of Genesis, he's going to have an opinion, which is not just good. It's very good. 
that is about as distinct and wide a separation of how to look at the material contrasted with the spiritual world that you can have. And unfortunately, as we develop this um, story a little bit more, we're going to see that the Greek culture and the Roman, um, I'm sorry, the Greek philosophy and the Roman culture is what embedded itself into this Jewish story of this Hebrew God says, hey, I think this world that I created and man's role in it and man himself is not only good, but very good. So obviously we have a big controversy of radically different points of view. And we have to admit, we are products of Western civilization. If you grew up here in the, in the United States, in the United States or in, in the Commonwealth of England or, or you're in Europe, you're basically um, intellectually Greeks in our thinking. That's just the way we were taught. And um, my goodness, when I attended law school, I mean, I, the first thing I was embedded in, immersed in was Socratic thinking because that's, that's the way law is taught here um, in the United States and it came over from um, from England and, and evolved from the Greeks. It's so, so in time, the concepts of Greek philosophy began, here we go, to influence Jewish thought as they would later influence also Christian thought. The idea that perfection uh, could only be found in separating yourself from the material world and entering into the spiritual world, and that anything connected to physical matter connected to it was inherently flawed. And that's basically Gnosticism. And to put it simply, this is called Simple Truth Moments. Material world is bad or evil, and only the spiritual world is good. That was not how Father God saw it when he created the earth and mankind and the purpose of mankind to have dominion in the earth. Big, radical separation. We'll study this more on the other side of the break. And uh, put on your seatbelts. God bless you. Welcome back. We are tackling this concept of uh, the Word of God as was used in the uh, first five verses of the book, or rather the gospel, written by the Apostle John, and um, how that uh, concept of the Word of God was going to evolve um, as it emanated and impacted both the Greek world of philosophy and the Jewish world of how to um, view the scripture. Don't forget, John the Apostle was not a Greek. He was not a Roman. He was a Jew. And so this is going to be an interesting um, study to see how this rolled out. Which was going to influence, be more influential on the other? (laughs) Is it going to be Greek philosophy uh, influencing um, how the 
Bible is interpreted, or is it going to be more a Jewish perspective based on um, at least 39 out of 40 Jewish authors? By the way, uh, with one possible exception, all of the authors of the New Testament were Jewish. Okay. Um, so the concepts of Greek philosophy began beginning to influence Jewish thought um, would create a problem in um, rabbinical, or rabbis' teaching about how the kingdom worked and what was the role of God and how this was all supposed to roll out because the Greeks were being influential. And the question came up, how could God, who was the ultimate of perfection, have any contact with a sinful world? Um, and so that created a dilemma. It created um, a paradox. And so a, quote, temporary solution, and I put solution in quotes here, to this problem was to assume that there was some sort of um, intermediary force or power between God and his creation. Um, now, again, this is buying into the Greek influence of saying, with Gnosticism, saying, hey, the material world is evil. And only in the spiritual world do you find perfection and development of good being turned into the perfect. Um, and so how is, this, how is this all going to roll out when you're explaining a Jewish written gospel about a Jewish God, um, Yahweh, Avinu, our father, Av, our father. Those are both Jewish references to Father God. And how does this concept of a Messiah um, becoming part of this covenant promises um, after everything, as far as this wonderful creation story, blows up in the third chapter of Genesis? And did God change his mind? Did God um, have to go to plan B? Or did God already have a plan on how to restore everything that had been lost in the fall? Everything that had been destroyed, everything that had been subject to destruction, he had a plan to actually outwit this fallen angel kingdom who thought that they had pulled uh, a, a successful rebellion that it began in the second heavens that we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and was brought down to heaven and blows up a wonderful story of the first two chapters of Genesis. And uh, so this, I'm going to take you through a little pathway here of what um, the Greeks were going to propose uh, with this reception of this gospel and what um, the Jewish thinking was. So the solution to the problem was to come up, uh, since God, as who's the ultimate perfection, couldn't have any contact with a sinful world after the fall— the solution to the problem was to assume some sort of intermediary force or power between God and his creation. And these powers would act on, on behalf of God. But they were separate from God, yet completely identified with God at the same time. So um, similar to Plato's um, 
designs and forms, these um, emanations from God were going to be most commonly known as the Logos or the Word of God. So is that what is that what the Apostle John meant when he was talking about the first five verses in, in the Gospel of John? Um, the idea of an intermediary was demonstrated early um, in a couple of other um, t- translations um, in the Aramaic. The equivalent word was memra, and it was used to identify a uh, type of intermediary who would b- be a buffering uh, agent between God and his creation. And to make the point, the, uh, the word memra was sometimes added to biblical texts. Um, for example, Adam and Eve heard the word, the memra of God walking in the garden. And you can see that buffering effect there. Um, in Exodus 3.12, God told Moses, I will be with you. But then in other translations, it is say, I, my memra will be with you. In other words, he's, there's this introduction that God himself as father would not be directly involved. So the, for the Jews of the first century, it was the memra of God that would perform the work of God and not God himself directly, thus providing a convenient buffer or a convenient separation uh, between the flawed material world from God himself. Now, you can see the effect of Gnostic thinking already that early. Um, We have in the first century a Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo, P-H-I-L-O. And for Philo, a Jewish philosopher now, the Lagos, like a memra, was to be a buffer to separate God from the world. So, here we have a Jewish philosopher from the first century who's buying into this Greek thinking. Now, in the place of the separation, um, in this place of separation, the word of the word, and I'm saying W-R-D, of Philo's writings um, was sent by God for the benefit of his creation. And uh, he was to work as some sort of um, ambassador. This word was to, to be a... Um, a how should I say, an advocate or a supplant uh, to the immortal God on behalf of the mortal race. And so he would be an agent, if you will, or an advocate. Um, and to represent um, the human race, which was subject and exposed to affliction and misery. He would be an interme- intermediary. The word um, but was neither God nor created, but something in between. So Philo um, puts a boast in the mouth of the word, and, um, and he wrote a book called Who is the Heir of Divine Things? And as he said, as I stood in the midst between the Lord and you. So the similarity between the logos of the Jewish philosopher Philo and the logos of John the Apostle is dramatic. It's striking. But there's also a significant difference. Let's take a look at the Jewish Apostle John's view of Logos. It's clearly identified in Jesus, as Jesus in the first five verses. Now, he doesn't use his name, but it says he was um, with God and he was God. Yet he was distinct from the Father as a separate personality. So now we're hinting, or thinking, okay, is, this, is he talking about Jesus coming um, not just as the Son of God, but as, as Son of Man? 
John begins to make a distinction that sets his view of Lagos dramatically apart from the view of the Greeks and even the view of the Jewish philosopher Philo who was influenced by the Greeks. And then John sets out in making this distinction in the following. This is in John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1, 14. So John's word of Lagos, he was an intermediary, as was Philo's, but there was a big, big significant difference. John's Lagos was also God. In first century thinking, whether you were a Jew, whether you were a Greek, or whether you were a Roman, God could not become flesh and dwell amongst us. And this was a profoundly sort of logos that John was referring to in his first five verses of the Bible. And, I'm sorry, first five verses of John's gospel and verse 14 of John's gospel in chapter 1. This profound difference of the word of God in the New Testament was of utmost importance to the apostle John. God never intended his logos to act as some sort of buffer to keep God and mankind separated from each other. Rather, John's use of the word logos was to function as a bridge to unite mankind with God, not to keep them separated. So whether you're talking about Plato or Philo, who all saw all contact between a perfect God and a flawed material world as being impossible, John the Apostle, in the first five verses of his gospel, and especially in verse 14, John portrays the use of Lagos as Father God's plan, as a reunification between God and fallen mankind. In the world of Greek philosophers and Roman culture, salvation um, usually involves the idea or the concept, if you're going to be saved or rescued, it, it involves some sort of escape from the world into us. I'm talking about the material world. So you're escaping from the creation into a state of pure spirituality. This pure spirituality is where you are going to be perfected. Okay? Um, Paradise was for those who were freed, in Greek thinking, from the physical world. That's, That's the ultimate target. That was the ultimate goal. Those who were still in their human body could not rise to that pure spirituality in the ethos, in the ethereal. And as long as they were connected to their human body, they were still connected to the earth. And the human body, from the Greek perspective, was viewed as some sort of tomb, basically uh, forcing them to be remaining 
remaining chained to the earth. And as the world, I'm sorry, as the church became predominantly Gentile in its composition, the church began to embrace the logos, unfortunately, of the Jewish um, influenced <laughs> uh, philosopher of Philo and Plutarch, and quite honestly, Aristotle. The underlying assumption of philosophy, which is the conviction that matter is flawed irredeemably, you can't fix it, and that perfection is limited exclusively to the spirit, was so universally assumed that no thought had ever been given to the possibility that it wasn't true when you looked at it in the light of a Jewishly influenced and authored gospel. And what was Father God's plan? So interpretation of Scripture began to be forced into conformity with this Greek way of thinking, this Greek philosophical approach, rather than the other way around. So Jesus, unfortunately, as we can see in early paintings, was portrayed as a Greek or a Roman philosopher as opposed to a Jewish Messiah who, in his role as a Jewish Messiah, was going to restore God's kingdom. If you show up as a Greek or a Roman philosopher, your focus is the opposite. It's how do I escape from this flawed creation and get up, get up into the ethereal world where only perfection can happen. So I, as a Roman Catholic kid, 16 years of formal uh, Roman, Roman Catholic education, that was pretty much what I was immersed in. Um, the target was universally, how do I get to heaven? That was the objective. And remaining here on earth was not even thought of. Um, it, it was con- considered to be um, just a way station. And getting up to heaven was going to be where you remain permanently, without your body, in your spiritual form, and you made it. You uh, got to the goal, and you achieved the goal. So salvation, from the Greek standpoint, from the Greek way of looking at things, became a matter of liberation from the world and a change of location from the, the earth to heaven, finally set free from your human body. Jesus was molded into an image of a Greco-Roman philosopher. He stopped being a Jewish Messiah who came to restore God's kingdom back on earth with the dominion of man to um, have a role of nurturing the earth, caring for it, governing it. And instead, Jesus became a great teacher of a Greco or Roman type who would enlighten the world, thus bringing salvation through an correct understanding of truth and only after gaining appropriate knowledge or gnosis from which we get uh, Gnosticism could one escape the material world finally entering into paradise.
But the Logos of John in his gospel, however, was never intended to be a rescue operation, attempting to remove a beleaguered remnant of people trapped in a material world. No, very different. The Logos of John in his gospel, the first five verses, and especially John 1.14, was rather an intent of not an escape, but an invasion, a returning of a kingdom back to its original design, an invasion which they complete restoration of the original vice regency of mankind, of humanity to rule over the earth, to rule and reign over the earth, to care for the earth. The gospel of the kingdom, rather, was a manifesto, not of escaping from earth to heaven, but the Jewish gospel of John was a manifesto of the opposite, of heaven coming to earth. I invite you now to think about the words in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus only teaches us a singular prayer. It's one prayer. And in that prayer, as we go line by line, we start to see that we have been highly influenced by Greek thinking, Greek philosophy, especially the idea of Gnosticism, that the material world because of who it was invented by, the demurge, material world is not just flawed, but it's evil. And we need to get out of and escape from this material world to be able to arrive at the perfection that is in Scripture. The problem is, and I challenge people with this, look, I'm not anti-heaven, I know that I'm going to die physically one day. Um, I love heaven. I want to go to heaven. But there's not a single verse in the Bible that says that's the reason that Jesus came. What it says in his own words, Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's in John chapter 10, verse 10. Still talking about John here. And when we go over to another uh, chapter in John's gospel of John seventeen three, he explains, Jesus himself explains what eternal life is. It's not transportation from a flawed earth to go up into heaven. That's what we have bought and taught. I don't care whether you were a Catholic. By the way, I was 16 years formal Catholic education, but I've been 46 years evangelical Protestant. And I say this as a Gentile. We were all taught this Greek thinking of it's the great escape. Just get out of Dodge. Okay. Uh, and, and, and father of God must've made a mistake when he said, when he looked at the creation and said, Oh, everything I've made is not just good. It's very good. So God must've had a plan B because he made a mistake. Really? Rather than looking at the purpose of a Jewish Messiah, God coming in the form of man. He's not just man and he's not just God, but he's very God of very God. And simultaneously, he's very man of very man. 
the fact that he was very man of very man was signaling something to the spiritual rebellion that began in heaven. And by the way, I've always kind of want, want pondered this. If heaven is so wonderful, didn't the problem of rebellion against God begin in one area of heaven? So <laughs> just from a logic standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. God's problem does, uh, that he has on his hands it doesn't have anything to do with location. It deals with the root of spiritual rebellion of the heart that the angels, fallen angels, did not want to be governed by Father God. Take a look at the five I wills of Isaiah chapter 14. Um, One of the five I wills was Satan saying, I'm going to raise my throne above that of the Most High. See, the question is always in this drama, who will be king. And the question I I had when I read that, I said, wait a minute, angels don't have thrones. Thrones are intended for God, Father God, the Son of God, Yeshua, Jesus, and people and mankind. We're supposed to sit on the right hand of Jesus. Okay, that's what Ephesians says. We're already there in the Spirit and Revelations 5.10 says, hey, we're coming back to this earth. Okay, there are so many references of return. It's a circular story, not a linear story, not a Greek straight line. It is a Jewish circular story. And so as we come back um, and we look at the Lord's um, only prayer that he taught us, is he teaching us to flee earth in the Lord's prayer or is he teaching us to reclaim our inheritance of earth? I think we talked about in Psalm 115, uh, verse 16, it talks about very clearly the heavens, yes, the heavens belong to God, but the earth belongs to the children of men. We're basically, with Greek philosophy and Catholic teaching and Protestant teaching, we're writing off earth as a lost cause. And we're saying, oh, as long as we just can just get out of here and get up into the ethos, into the ethereal, into heaven. And Satan would be celebrating that. Why? Well, in the second, in the second temptation in Luke chapter 4, when Satan takes uh, Jesus up to the mountain, he doesn't show him heaven as the prize. It's supposed to be a temptation. Here you have Jesus, the head of the divine kingdom, and you have Satan, head of the fallen kingdom of angels. And the, what was shown to him was the earth and all of the nations of the earth. Satan would love nothing more than for us to have a Greek point of view that the earth is flawed and evil, and it's irredeemable, and we just need to get out of here. We have been basically hoodwinked with this teaching. And the purpose of Jesus coming as a Jewish Messiah, as very God of very God, and very man of very man, is to signal to the fallen angels that his father did not make a mistake when he created all that he did in chapter 1 and 2 
of the book of Genesis and especially the role of mankind to be on earth as a visible representation of God, to have his likeness and to image it to the world. That was man's purpose. And Jesus came as a visible image of his father. And that was what his, his ministry was all about for three years on this earth, three and a half years on this earth. He was the visible image of the Father. We're supposed to have the same job. We can't escape. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Listen, on earth as it is in heaven. Different perspective. God is coming with an invasion to reclaim our inheritance of earth. God bless you. Simple Truth Moments. See you next week. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.